The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Joining me on the soapbox at six today, uh, Niall Breslin, uh, Brezzy, better known as to some of you, and the host of the very successful podcast, Where Is My Mind? Actually, a tour coming up uh, on that front uh, in April. Uh, we'll have the details a little bit later. Um, Brezzy, it is good to see you. Thanks a million for coming in. Delighted to be here. Um, so we had David Quinn on the soapbox yesterday, and he was talking a little bit about groupthink in Ireland. Uh, tomorrow, Barbara Scully is going to be joining us. Brendan Ogle uh, will be with us next week. Today, you specifically, when you is the opportunity, I understand, to talk about something that myself and Stephen Donnelly talked about exactly one hour ago, which is the mental health services mm-hmm. in this country and the state of those services. Mm-hmm. Before we talk or before we kind of diagnose the problem, can you give us a, a sense of the shortcomings as you understand them? So I suppose the kind of catalyst for me to go and start my PhD was the CAMS report, was the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services report came out this year. And I think that it kind of came out, it was absolutely harrowing. And then it just disappeared, like most things do. And we can't let this one disappear. It's too bad. It's too harrowing. And I I think it's important to start this conversation out by saying, I have a fundamental belief that Ireland can be world leaders in youth mental health. We're a population of five million. We're a perfect case study. We're the size of Manchester. We can do this. We have huge international reputation. But right now, when you see lines like absence of clinical and corporate governance, when we have psychiatrists in Dubai diagnosing children in Kerry over Zoom and not monitoring them on medication, these are children. And one uh, one of the guys I had on my podcast was Davin Godfrey, who spoke about his, his situation with CAMS. He's put on six different really strong medications without a mental health di- diagnosis. He ended up having to have a, a surgery to remove his breasts. He put on that much weight. He was unmonitored. He had no diagnosis. And when he actually got a diagnosis, it was autism. So this is fundamental stuff. This is, mm. this is beyond basic. And there's a tolerance to it. And the thing I find most uh, difficult to understand is the tolerance. And you spoke of Stephen Donnelly a few w- a weeks after this report. I heard very little, a little about him talking about this report. A few weeks after, he said, I have the solution. Let's ban phones from schools. Now, banning from phones from schools is a good idea, but it has nothing to do with a lack of clinical governance in the HSC. That is just distracting. We have to get to the core of this. Is the core problem a simple one to diagnose? Is it, is it simply a lack of resources? We just need to hire more people to fit the system that already exists, or is it more fundamental? It's much more fundamental. So a big remit of my research is looking at 150 years of mental health intervention in Ireland. We've never had this right. We've never cared, really. We've done, we've had lobotomies, we've had insulin coma therapy, malaria treatment, all these barbaric treatments. And we still have legacies that prevail from that time in Ireland. And by 1950, Ireland had the highest level of people in coercive confinement in psychiatric hospitals in the world, in the world. So we loved putting people into institutions. So our entire belief around mental health is that it's a biological problem, that if somebody is, uh, has mental distress, there's something wrong with their brain. Mm. We know that there's much more to it now. There's a huge element of social forces that we've got to look at. You know, there's people in Dublin who who have two jobs, who can't pay their rent. The impact that has on someone's self-worth, their ability to have autonomy, all this type of stuff. And what we've done at Mental Health in Ireland is we've depoliticalized it. We keep, and the wellness industry has done this too. If you are overwhelmed or stressed or anxious, it's because you're just not resilient enough, Kieran. You're not taking mm. enough magnesium. You should, do, you should do a bit of yoga. Now, it's, imper- it's important we take personal responsibility, 
But we also got to look to our politicians and those that govern us to make sure that we have our needs met and that we're supported and that we have autonomy. So I think much of our mental health system focuses way too much on the individual and the biology of the individual rather than the social forces. So it's not just the health system's job to fix this. It's societies. It's, soci- it's, it's political. It, it, mental health is political. It is absolutely political. And in the manifestos we've seen over the last election cycles have been pretty unremarkable from all parties mm-hmm. because they, have, they don't look at this in a broader sense. They look at it as a health problem. This is much bigger than that. And it's, you can't silo it. You look at the housing problem. This, we're siloing these issues. And we're putting housing over there and mental health over here. They're all part of the same issue, is that we, we had a country that became so driven by economic growth, so driven by neoliberal kind of models, mm-hmm. that we actually dropped the ball on very basic social issues, like housing, like health. And we, it doesn't need to be like this. And I don't believe politicians don't care. I just think mental health scares them. So, but, I mean, all of those uh, political parties that you mention, right, they might not explicitly say that then in their manifestos. It's unimpressive is the word you describe it as. Uh, But they do come up with suggestions to solve some of those problems, you know, around housing, Mm -hmm. um, around employment, around community, whatever it happens to be. So, I mean, as, as a consequence of solving them, will they not deal with some of the fundamental, the underlying issues that you bring up? If they keep using the same lens on which to look at health and mental health, they will still keep getting this. If we do this in 50 years, we'll be still talking about this. We're putting plaster and bullet wounds here. We need a fundamental rethink. That's what John Farley said from the CAMS report. He said we need a root and branch rethink of the child and adolescent mental mm. health service. And what he means by that is we've got to look at this differently. And one of the key areas that I believe in, that fundamentally to every cell in my body, that if we start focusing much more on mental health on early prevention, and early intervention, now proper models of care for early prevention and early intervention, not just nice posters by the HSC and, you know, Norma Foley saying, let's put psychologists in schools. I'm like, great, where are you going to get them? How are you going to resource them? How are you going to pay them? We have to think much bigger than this. And respectfully to our politicians, this is really complex and it's really overwhelming. And I would not like to have been a politician over the last number of years. It's been difficult to govern, mm-hmm. no doubt. But the way we're doing, we have to first admit it hasn't worked and it's not working. We can't let this CAMS report just filter away as if it was nothing. We have fundamentally failed way too many children and mm. their families in this country and we can't let it happen again. So I, I, I do this focus on my research because I think we can, we can be world leaders. So d- describe to me then in more detail how you imagine the preventative piece to look like. Okay, so prevention is different to intervention. Prevention to me is how do we stop people? How do we give them the ability to understand emotions? And how do we stop pathologicalizing normal human emotion like sadness Mm. and anxiety and stress? These are things we all experience as human beings. Do we need to put a label or a pathology or do we even need to medicalize these things? And we have to be careful with that, especially with children. So early prevention is driven through education. We have the best, one of the best education systems in the world. And in, in activism, I believe you've got to also look at what does work in society. And we have a good education system, but we have to resource it properly. Telling teachers that this is their job is a ridiculous thing to say. They have too much to do. This has to be resourced properly. If you want to put counsellors and psychologists in schools, we've got to think about that. It's a strategy. It'll take yeah. time. Then we look at educational programmes. If you look at Lust for Life, the charity I co-founded, we're in nearly 1,400 primary schools now with mental health programmes. They're evidence-based. They're free. There is no obstacle to getting. If you want those programs, your principal just goes on our website and they're trained in and updated and, and teachers are given that. But we have to be careful. This isn't teachers' jobs. We have to think of this, we have to think of the education health as very closely aligned. And then early intervention is if there is a problem there. If you've assessed a child and the child has 
is overwhelmed by their environment, there's autism or there's ADHD, that we create an environment where they don't feel so overwhelmed by the world. And the, these are things, these are early intervention programs. But what we're doing now and what we've always done in mental health is we have a point of crisis model. We wait for people to get to a point of crisis. We intervene mm. maybe in 12 or 24 months after that crisis and we expect that to solve the problem and we throw 6% of our health budget at it. It's not rocket science. And I think the issues are complex. The solutions, I don't believe, are. The programmes you're talking about uh, that uh, would help that uh, preventative um, model to kind of flourish within our education system and within society. Is, is that not teaching resilience or how is it different from kind of just teaching kids to be resilient? We have to be careful with the word resilience. Yeah. Resilience is a word that we just use. Like anyone listening to this who got through the pandemic and got up back on their feet are the very definition of what resilience is. You don't need resilience training. You don't need to be a better version of yourself. It was really overwhelming. It was difficult. And re- resilience is the ability to come back from adversity. I think what we're teaching it as is the ability to avoid it. And avoidance is the root of all disorder. You need to teach young kids things like negative, difficult emotions are important. Sit with them, figure them out, be with them. And, and, and in terms of one of the things we would do is like, where do you experience them in your body? Like where, where, That anxiety, where do you have it? And, and you talk to children like that, they really start to see a function to their anxiety. So there's something they can do with it. So a lot of people say to me, geez, kids are really anxious. I'm like... Guys, they've just gone through a global pandemic. Mm. They just watched you watching Tony Hoolan every night at six o'clock and going, how many did he say? They fed off your anxiety, your natural anxiety that we all experienced. And we were expecting them just to do cartwheels back into the meadow when it was all over. And we need to take some space here with them and time and we need to think about them. And I think these are the things that I, I, I believe this rush to put labels and to pathologicalize rather than to think and to have conversations and support mm. systems. That to me is already prevention. It won't solve all problems, but it's a, we know that through evidence basis. And, and that, that idea of, of asking the child, like, where do they feel it? Is it the kind of butterflies in the stomach? Is it the palms getting sweaty? Is it the breathing quickening up? Whatever it happens to be. I mean, is, is that just simply a way of, of kind of explaining it or helping a child to understand it in a way that they can, that it's kind of, it's kind of the intangible made manifest. You know, like you talk yeah. about anxiety and stress to a nine-year-old, but I mean, they're kind of abstract concepts, totally. really. But if you kind of say, you know, that way you feel the, the breathing is starting to quicken up, that, that's what we're talking about here. The first thing you do is validate it for them. You, you say like that, you know, or mummy or daddy, we feel that too. We get anxious too. But the one thing I always say is, I say this to adults and to children. I say when your mind starts to go run riot, it's like asking and if your mind will not calm down your mind for you. Mm. It's like asking a dog who has a zoomies to sit down. It's not going to happen. But if you get when your mind starts to go all over the place, get into the body. The body will slow that down. And what I'm, that's what breathing's important, a grounding and feeling that this is really important stuff to teach children. If they're getting overwhelmed by the world, things like I do is get them to to, to rub their fingers together like this, as if it's their mind, and then slow down the fingers mm. and roll. and. That function is very helpful for children because they're not really trying to figure out where their anxiety comes from. They're just trying to deal with it. And I think that overwhelms parents. And I think when you develop proper early prevention programs, these are things you can teach young kids. But you also have to, as I said, resource them. You also have to look at things like inequality and inequity in society and what that does within mental health. So these are really complex issues. But unfortunately, I think up to this point, we have to admit we haven't got it right. And that's okay if we admit it. But the idea is that if you equip the kids early enough in their life with those skills and with the reality that 
they have to face adversity. They can't avoid it. Then what you do is you 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 raise children and educate children in such a way that they don't end up on kind of CAMS waiting lists or they don't end up in mental health commission reports. That there will, all, there will always be yeah. children who end up with acute need. In the same way with any biological illness, there will be people kind of who, who end up acutely ill with the best will in the world. But you have, there's lots of um, cases that are included in that mental health commission report last year that it says you so much that were preventable effectively. I absolutely believe most of them were. And, and, and that's the reality is if we can actually start creating spaces for children to understand these big emotions and these big feelings that they have. And I think it's really said something really important there, Karen. This is I, I work with a lot of psychologists an awful lot of the time, brilliant people who work with children every single day. We can't lie to them either. We can't pretend life is great. We can't pretend life is a straight line. And, and actually that messaging doesn't help children. And I think what happens now is we've created a fear factory for parents around parenting and mental health and we keep parents are absolutely terrified. Mm. And I really have a lot of sympathy and empathy for them. But the reality is we can't bubble wrap children either. They have to experience adversity and difficulty. We did, you did, I did. And we dealt with it in our own ways. And now I'm not using the 80s as a good example of how (laughs) we should be addressing mental health. But the reality is we have to be honest about this stuff. And part of our programming is that we say that kids like, yeah, you know, that difficult thing that you're feeling, we can't just push it away. What does it feel like? Why do you think you feel it? And get them curious about it and get them to soften that stuff and think about it. But then if a kid has other big issues with their, you know, neurodivergence or there's other issues, if you assess them, the problem is that assessment is coming way too late. Yeah. And then the assessment at that stage, that child has been overwhelmed for a, a number of years and, and their hypervigilant state, their central nervous systems are overwhelmed. We can't let that happen and it doesn't need to happen. And um, in the richest country in Europe, it absolutely is not acceptable that we're looking at you, your child and adolescent mental health services like this. A great conversation on children uh, and these issues. As one listener, adults uh, need some emotional regulation techniques uh, too, I would suggest. And this listener says, Brezzy stating that Ireland is the same population as Manchester really resonated with me. We're a tiny country really and the government can't manage to run it. Housing and health a mess. There's no excuse given the size uh, of the country. Um, I mentioned right at the outset the podcast tour. People want to find out more. Yeah, just go on nilebreson.com. I'm all over the country in April. If you want to come and chat about this little piece of meat between our ears and how we can better take care of it in this chaos, uh, hit me up on nilebreson.com. nilebreson.com. Niall, an absolute pleasure. Thanks. As always. Listen, thanks, thanks a million, million uh, for joining us. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.